Hello. First, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose land we meet today. We pay respects to their elders, past and present, and also to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders here today. I'd like to thank the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, Faculty Collaborative Research Scheme, Meredith Hall in particular, and all the folks at Sydney Ideas, the event staff at the U.S. Studies Center, in particular my collaborator with the American Cultures Workshop, Sarah Gleason White, who's in the audience somewhere, um, for this event. And thank you all for coming. This is a particularly opportune and important time, I think, to revisit some of the issues and perhaps lessons for the contemporary world that, were raised by, that are raised by studying the social movements and insurgent politics of the 1960s and 1970s. And let me say really quickly a brief word about the structure of what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to introduce my fellow panelists, and then each of us will give a brief approximately 10-minute presentation uh, surrounding these issues really broadly conceived. We'll then have a bit of a back and forth amongst ourselves, and then probably for the last half hour or so, we will open it up to questions from the floor and hopefully a wide-ranging discussion. So first, uh, to my middle right, um, Andrew Diamond is Professor of American History and Civilization at the University of Paris-Sorbonne. He received his PhD from the University of Michigan and is the author of Mean Streets, Chicago Youths, and the Everyday Struggle for Empowerment in the Multiracial City, and the forthcoming book, City on the Make, Power, Race, and Inequality in Chicago, as well as multiple French language volumes on the 1960s, African American History, and the Urban History of Chicago. To my far right is Caroline Roland Diamond, who is Associate Professor of American History at the University of Paris Nanterre. She's the author of multiple French language volumes, and I'm translating this from Google Translate just so we're clear. Um, Chicago, including Chicago in 1968, Student Protest and Political Repression, and Black America, The Struggle for Equality and Justice. And to my immediate right is Rebecca Sheehan, who is a lecturer in American Studies at the U.S. Studies Center here at the University of Sydney. She received her PhD in U.S. History from the University of Southern California, and is the author of the forthcoming book, Rise of the Superwoman, How Sex Remade Gender in the Long 1970s. My name is Thomas Adams, and I'm a lecturer in History and American Studies here at the University of Sydney. My own work focuses on the history of labor, political economy, and social movements in the United States. And I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna begin, and we're gonna move to Beck, Carlene, and then finally, Andrew. Um, so when I first arrived in Australia, like many Americans, I was struck by the tradition of acknowledgement of country. The idea of a similar tradition gaining traction in the U.S. is fairly laughable, in fact. At the same time, it seems, seems in some ways an excellent metaphor for what we might understand as the failings and legacies of the 1960s. Indeed, while poverty rates for Aboriginal Australians remain astronomical, while deaths in custody continue to be all too commonplace, we regularly meet and acknowledge and pay respect to the people on whose land, stolen land we live and work. From the most critical lens, one can imagine no better encapsulation of a discourse of recognition that substitutes a posture of acknowledgement for an oppositional politics. Such a posture is, arguably, one of the demobilizing legacies that I, we want to get at today, or at least I want to get at today, of the 1960s, and one that I hope we can tease out more in the discussion. Now, we're meeting here tonight at a really fascinating moment in not just American history, but I think global history as well. Fascinating and also profoundly hopeful and profoundly scary. As we speak, in Brazil, the world's fourth largest democracy is watching a slow coup unfold in its midst, perhaps less bloody than what occurred in that country almost exactly 52 years ago today, but no less momentous and historic. In the US, yesterday marked the likely end of the chances of Bernie Sanders' election to the American presidency, though it remains to be seen what will become of the mobilizations of millions of people who are inspired by Sanders' messages of healthcare, education, and living wages as rights, combined with a decidedly less imperialistic foreign policy than has been on the table in American history for generations. 
And when I lecture on the 1960s in America, one of the foremost things I try to get across to my students is the deep feeling that pervaded many people in the US and around the globe that the world was, in a sense, up for grabs, that the deep and often seismic change, the deep and often seismic change felt not only possible but likely. As we know now, of course, much of this change failed to materialize. The occupations and riots, protests and assassinations, sit-ins and mass marches largely failed on their own stated terms. Why they failed is, of course, completely up for grabs as historians, and I would like to argue a central task of rebuilding a cohesive political insurgency in a contemporary context is to understand that the critical junctures where wrong turns were taken and poor strategy yielded defeat. If the Sanders has campaign has achieved anything, and I think it most certainly has, it has served to sharpen the contradictions within the nominal American left. One of the sharpest of these contradictions has to do with historical causation, how we understand the last 45 years of upward economic redistribution and soft and not so soft imperialist foreign policy. For some, these policies are symptomatic of a reinvigorated American conservatism, one that the Democratic Party has had no choice but to acquiesce to in a variety of manners or risk complete annihilation. For others, and to be clear, I count myself firmly in this camp, what we may call imperial neoliberalism represents nothing more or less than global capitalism freed from effective opposition. Thus, its lack of substantive opposition to these policies and programs and failure to build such an opposition is in fact to blame. And with that in mind, I want to take us back almost exactly 50 years to 1966, in a moment that historians, let alone activists and quotidian citizens in the US have largely forgotten. That October, a remarkable collection of coalition of individuals and organizations led by A. Philip Randolph, arguably the most important civil rights leader of the 20th century United States, released a seemingly mundane document known as the Freedom Budget, a 10-year plan grounded in a plethora of specific policies to end poverty in the United States through the inscription of a right to health care, education, jobs, living wage, and housing. To quote Randolph and the coalition that included people ranging from Martin Luther King to Benjamin Spock, but more importantly, organizations with real and mobilizable constituencies, ranging from the United Auto Workers, the Student Nonviolent non Coordinating Committee, to the American Civil Liberties Union, to the National Catholic Life Conference, to the American Jewish Congress, quote, the freedom budget is not self-executing. Individuals and groups need to assume the political task of imposing upon their government the obligation to undertake promptly the needed programs. The abolition of poverty can only be accomplished through actions, actions that embrace the totality of victims of poverty, neglect, and injustice. Social progress is always the trusteeship of those battling constantly to lift the level of political feasibility. Now again, we're only talk, each talking for 10 minutes, and I want to actually slowly begin to wrap this up in a way, but I want to lay bare why I think the freedom budget in particular is so remarkable, as well as the historical amnesia around it is so telling. First is its dogged determination to unite the many in their common interests for the guaranteeing of social rights. Its insistence that a universalistic pol political project is the only kind of politics indeed worth speaking of. This is an old vision of politics, spelled out most gracefully in the old labor song, Solidarity Forever, by the line, quote, what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one. Secondly, it wedded this universalistic project to define institutions capable of mobilizing a vast and diverse cohort of people to actively place demands upon the state and employers. Indeed, throughout the 50-page document, it is institutions, civil rights and feminist organizations, labor unions, faith-based congregations, and not individual politicians, movement leaders, or undifferentiated masses of the oppressed or downtrodden that is tasked with imposing this program. Thus, it was adamant that only a universalistic political program wedded to institutional capability 
had a modicum of hope in achieving real and substantive transformation. Now, why then did the freedom budget fail? And, and the truly diverse why did the freedom budget and the truly diverse organizational cohort behind it fail? Now, I would argue that it's here where we must especially encounter the legacies of the 1960s and our failure to understand them. Even by 1966, the new left and student movement, along with a good deal of black power, was moving away from such universalistic principles, and equally as important, away from building lasting organizational capacity. By the mid-1970s, a good deal of feminism, as well as the Chicano rights movement and gay liberation would follow suit. In the place of such principles arose new, new understandings of politics, grounded in individual and group fulfillment and recognition, the moralism of bearing witness, and the ahistoric authenticity of cultural ownership and acknowledgement. Political insurgency and mass mobilization in America and beyond quickly moved towards sporadic fits of bearing witness over the, over the visible, and visible injustices of a given moment. Police brutality, economic inequality, the dislocations of globalization, the abuses and genocidal character of American global power. To paraphrase the historian Daniel Rogers, the terrain of contentious politics thinned out, while a universalistic program married to organizational capacities capable of soldiering through defeats and exploiting moments of strategic opportunity in context ceased to have any allure. And thus we arrive in 2016. What is helpful about this moment and reminiscent of that brief time in 1966 is not the candidacy of an avowed socialist for presidency of the United States, but a reinvigorated universalistic language that has proven incredibly popular and that seems to also be taking institution building seriously. But also like in 1966, if it is to fail, the forces of reaction, be they in the guise of Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or the Brazilian anti-democratic right, clearly work around the corner promising another half century of not just lowered political feasibility, to use Randolph's terms, and slow methodical defeat, again, something they very much predicted in 1966 were a sans institutional politics to take power, but the real possibility of social disaster for the many in both the US and around the world. So in thinking about what I would talk about tonight, there were so many things that came to mind, including the first time that I actually got the 1960s. It was the first teaching job that I had in university. I was tutoring a course about the comparative analysis of the 60s in Australia and the United States. And I was teaching going, yeah, good, good, good. And then I watched Easy Rider. And <laughs> the thing about LSD opening your mind was like, Oh, now I understand the 1960s. So I have a... Uh, oh, oh, one of the things I thought about talking tonight was all the new studies coming out about how useful LSD is. But I thought in the context of talking about social movements and also because I saw earlier this week that Viet Van Nguyen's just won the Pulitzer Prize um, for his first novel, The Sympathizer, it's a Vietnamese-American story, specifically written for Vietnamese-Americans to read. And I noticed that it was published by Grove Press. And when I saw that it was published by Grove Press, I thought, of course. The Grove Press name has been associated with great literature, radical politics, and the politics of sexual freedom and racial freedom since 1951, when a man named Barney Rossett bought this very struggling young publishing house. And the key principle that he had, he, he'd been a member of the Communist Party, he was very interested in communist politics, but he moved more towards the main principle of freedom of speech, and that was his guiding vision for this publishing house. And Grove Press went on to publish authors outside the mainstream, 
Its flagship literary magazine, Evergreen Review, published the beat poets from uh, Ginsburg to Kerouac to Burroughs. It published more black writers than any other American magazine. It published political works by Malcolm X, Che Guevara, Franz Fanon, and then was also involved in high-profile censorship battles from the late 1950s throughout the 1960s over books that it published, including D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover, Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, and then the Swedish film I Am Curious Yellow. These battles, really interestingly, were funded, they cost an enormous amount of money, but they were funded by Grove's publication of mass market paperbacks, which could most, generous be, most generously be described as works of erotic fiction, but really more kind of soft porn and not very good, generally, at that. But these battles helped to liberalise American sexuality, ideas about sexuality and rebellion, as well as censorship laws, and it helped to make American culture more sexually explicit. So part of, for instance, some of the precedents established in the battle over I Am Curious Yellow get used in enabling definitions of obscenity to be um, determined by the Supreme Court to be determined by state rather than having some kind of overall national meaning of obscenity. This en enables cities like New York and Los Angeles to start screening X-rated films in the early 70s, giving rise to the moment of what was called then porn chic. So everyone's out watching porn films at the cinema together. Imagine that, sitting all next to each other, watching Deep Throat. Or, um, so from the 1960s through the 1960s, a beacon for cutting-edge left-leaning writers and thinkers, Grove Press and its imprints came to be synonymous with artistic work that described the problems of the times, considered people's feelings, responses and solutions, and in doing so provided a sense of possibility, an aesthetic or practice of what the um, Carl Oglesby, who was for a year the president of uh, SDS, called heroic collectivism. But it turns out that Grove wasn't so heroic after all. Grove's commitment to free speech seemed to have little concern for whose freedoms were compromised along the way. And that point was illustrated in a triple action that was taken against the press in April of 1970, when 26 women led by the radical feminist Robin Morgan barricaded themselves into the executive offices of Grove Press. Barney Rossett was overseas at the time, apparently collecting more pornography for his personal collection. Um, and a few days earlier, um, Robin Morgan and some of these feminists had been involved in a union organising effort. So although the wages that were paid to workers at Grove Press were comparative with other young publishing houses, um, or other publishing houses in New York City, they still weren't very good. Um, they had really poor or complete lack of benefits. And, um, and Barney Rossett was really against unionising. He said that it would compromise free speech. So there was this union organising effort, a bunch of people were sacked after it, and then Robin Morgan used the moment to kind of do stage this feminist takeover. And the women issued a statement requesting various things, but they said Grove Press had made millions off the basic theme of humiliating, degrading and dehumanising women through sadomasochistic literature, pornographic films and oppressive and exploitative practices against its own female employees and had even, they claim, not distributed royalties fairly. So, for instance, was not um, giving the correct amount of royalties to Malcolm X's family for the publishing of his autobiography, or, and they had even published Che Guevara's uh, diaries without the permission of his widow. So, 
Um, and then outside the building at the same time, there was a union protest against what had happened um, at Grove Press. And then also there was a third group who were protesting Grove seeming kind of going back on their initial policy of um, publishing books that were generally deemed to be unsafe. So now Grove Press was becoming much more timid and in particular started to refuse to publish books by the Black Panthers. So initially in the early 60s to mid 60s, Grove Press would have been the place that Black Panthers would have gone to publish their work and now Grove Press was saying that they weren't gonna do so. The three groups reunited in their disappointment in Grove's failure to live up to the radical political ideals it had nurtured, but the key thing that happened, so this is the same year that feminists are protesting at publishing houses for sexism around New York City, even the ladies' home journal like Woman's Day or Woman's Weekly, they're protesting there. Grove Press did to the feminist occupiers on that day in April what even the ladies' home journal didn't do, they called the police on them. And the police came in and arrested nine women and took them to jail where they were then held on felony charges because Grove Press claimed that they'd done um, more than $250 worth of damage to property. So it turned into this massive thing. What the feminists very cleverly did was uh, put a lot of pressure on all of the constituents of Grove Press, if you like, to say, if you continue to support Grove Press, you're sexist and you're racist because Grove Press has been exploiting women and minorities for its profits. And so this basically split these groups of people who'd all come together because Grove created a kind of center focus for them. And um, by the following year, Evergreen Review ceased to be printed and Grove Press never recovered from it. So even though now we have the name Grove Press and we, we have these associations uh, of it with these great political radical ideals from the 1960s, this story has actually largely disappeared from what we understand um, of Grove Press's history. And um, there are many things to say about it, but there are a number of, of ways that we could tease, or a number of stories that we could tease out from this and issues to talk about, um, and in no particular order based on the conversation we were just having before, the relationship between business and revolution, for instance. So to think about the way that social media has now been used um, in the so-called Arab Spring um, or in revolution in Burma, um, Facebook and Twitter, for instance. Problems of ideas of authenticity and commodification. So this sense that we have of looking back in time that things were more authentic, the authentic 1960s, whereas now we're just dealing in a world of um, artifice. The sexism in the left that I see in some of the critiques of Hillary Clinton, um, no lesson seems to have been learned from this, the horrendous split that happened from these people who were previously working together um, and how powerful second wave feminism was that it could bring down this publishing house. So the power of feminism uh, at that time in the late 1960s and into the 1970s, these are just some of the, some of the thoughts I had about its relationship to now. One of the dominant images of the 60s is that of an era of student, prote student protesters taking to the streets to demand an end to the war in Vietnam, a voice in university decisions, and more generally, racial and social equality. Most retrospectives on the 60s in the US highlight the events that shook the University of California at Berkeley, 
and Columbia University in New York City. And then they move on to the confrontation between police and peaceful demonstrators, uh, like the one that took place in Chicago at the time of the National Democratic Convention. Now both the historiography and collective memory generally focus on the actions of the white middle class to upper class students of the new left. In this vision, black students are rarely mentioned, and when they are, the story of the mobilization is generally limited to the sit-in movement against segregation of the early 60s in the South, and a few images of black power activists taking over administrative buildings like at Cornell University in 1969. As a consequence, we often get the impression that the history of student activism in this era is one of the rise and fall that closely followed the radicalization of the main student group of the new left, Students for Democratic Society. Influenced by black student activism in the South, in that story, the national student movement grew slowly in the first few years of the 1960s, then faster when the US started bombing North Vietnam in 1965 and drafting an increasing number of young Americans. Then student activism reached a climax in 1967-68 with college youths forming the core group of anti-war protesters. And then you have the revolutionary years of 1968 and 69, when anything seemed possible, or as Thomas just said, when the world was up for grabs, and the line between dissent and disruption became blurred. Then followed the decline of the student movement in the early 1970s, due to a set of factors ranging from the end of the Vietnam War to the onset of the economic crisis, to the violent excesses of the revolutionary project, the infighting and factionalism, and of course, political repression. Now, although the student mobilization did not produce the general changes towards more social equality that they tried to achieve, it did produce institutional, a major institutional transformation of the university. Governance rules changed and students gained a voice in the university. In the US, in addition, pro student pro protest also led to the creation of black studies, ethnic studies, and gender studies departments. Now, it's unclear to determine if the what was the exact role that the student protest played in ending the war in Vietnam. It's very much debated, and maybe we can say it didn't produce much. Now, that said, these changes that the student protest achieved were of tremendous importance for the university as an institution in the US and in other countries like France, and their impact is still felt nowadays. Now, ever since this period, commentators have stressed the quantitative decline of protest on American campuses since the mid-1970s, and the depoliticized image of the new generations of students who have come of age after the Watergate scandal in a difficult, difficult economic context. These generations are called Generation X and then Generation Y, or the Millennium Generation, and described as individualistic only concerned with their own professional future and thoroughly convinced of the virtues of capitalism. In brief, these are more conservative student generations who only mobilize in the name of their own interests. For instance, protests against tuition hikes in California in 2009, in, the Great, in Great Britain, or even here in Australia uh, a few years ago. When social justice student movements do emerge, such as, if you go back in time, the anti-apartheid movement in the 1980s, or the anti-sweatshop movement in the 1990s, they inevitably get compared to their 60s predecessors and look pale in comparison to the great decade. Even the Occupy movement, when it made the headlines in, during the fall and winter of 2011, it was again compared to the 60s student movement and its relative relatively short lifespan 
made it fail again, the great decade test. Now, I believe this comparison between an idealistic mobilization for social justice, on the one hand, that would have been the 60s vision, and a more pragmatic, individualistic mobilization on the other, which is today's mobilization by students, is not only unfair, but is politically questionable. Well, first, it is based on a distorted vision of, of 60s student protest. Beyond the middle class students that took to the streets for peace and equality, there were just as many students from less privileged backgrounds, white, black, and Latino students, who mobilized around local, political, and social issues, such as the role of the university in the, lo in the local community, around admission issues, and remedial programs for students from poor backgrounds. In addition, although they did not attract much media attention, most student protests in the 60s, the majority of student protests in the 60s, involved actually such a burning issue as food quality. There are many more demonstrations about food quality in the 60s than they were against the war in Vietnam. The, so if you look back to the 60s, college and university students were in many ways just as concerned as today's students with the conditions affecting their lives as students. And in this sense, they are no different from other social movement activists, whether from the labor movement or from the civil rights movement. Now, not considering this key aspect of the 60s student mobilization makes it possible, in my eyes, to dismiss today's protest as just bread and butter and to denounce the 21st century college student as individualistic and politically apathetic. I'm not trying they're not. I'm trying to say they're not, but I think it's a little more complicated than this. I'm not trying to say there's no difference between today's activism and the 60s activism. I believe there are obvious differences in terms of size, the size of protest, and the number of college students involved in them. And there are also differences in the relation that the student mobilization entertains with other social mobilizations. In the 60s, the phrase the movement with a capital M conveyed such convergence of political issues and forms of activism that today protest movements are divided and activists often find it difficult to establish durable links between movements and as the Occupy movement and the Awe 99% movements have shown. Now there are links, there are inspirations on the, actually on a global scale, but locally it seems to be difficult to maintain them over the long term in a politically conservative environment. Now some of these difficulties are due to the rise of identity politics in the late 1960s and early 70s, and I think we may talk about this more in a minute. But the, the small number of participants of today's protest is also res reflective of the, I find, of the growing conservatism on campus, which actually originated in the 1960s. So I think it's important to look at the 60s from different perspectives, and especially to look back at the origin of the growing conservative global student culture that uh, may or may not, it's up to discussion, dominate campus life today. Because indeed there was another side to the 60s. And the idea that the 60s was an overwhelmingly liberal or radical decade is wrong. Now several scholars have already shown that student radicals were a tiny minority in comparison with the numbers of people who joined the counterculture. But what remains understudied and under-discussed under is that the fact that the majority of students actually either identified as conservative or middle of the road. The most active of the the, among the conservatives were the students members of the Young Americans for Freedom or, college, or the college Republicans or the young Republicans who actively mobilized against the new left. And 
The larger group were the middle-of-the-road students who simply opposed the disruption of student life on campus. And we found the same disproportion between the number of conservative activists and moderate students that we have on the left side of the political spectrum between the radical students and the more moderate liberal ones. The conservative activists number just sometimes a few dozens on campus and a few well, tens of thousands nationwide. Whereas the, the vast majority of students rather spend their time, their college years, studying, doing sports, cheering the university teams, or just hanging out and partying with their friends. But I would argue that these two groups of students from the 1960s, moderates and conservatives, formed together the basis of a growing conservative student culture that came to dominate campus life in the decades after the 60s and played a key role in, beyond the campus in the making of the new right. The values they defended, values of individualism, of meritocracy against any kind of affirmative action programs, of fairness in teaching against their liberal or radical professors, and of the right to dissent, but not to disruption, these values became weapons in the cultural wars of the 1980s and 90s. But they also prepared the campus, the campus community for its rec more recent neoliberal turn and the larger demobilization that we can see on campus, both in the US and in Europe. Now the fact, and I'll end with this, the fact that most students today do not believe in the power of demonstrating is a direct legacy of the influence of a conservative student culture which had its origins in these other 60s I was referring to. And beyond its importance to understand current student mobilization, I believe that historicizing the rise of such conservative political and cultural activism reveals another facet of more generally, the ascendancy of the modern, of modern conservatism. Okay, uh, I just want to thank the organizers for, for having me, and I guess I'll thank for, for having us uh, together. Um, I think, and I think my remarks will echo uh, those of, of Thomas somewhat, so prepare. Uh, by the end of the 1960s, social movements had combined with Democratic Party control of government to fundamentally alter the political order in the United States. The country's racial order had been reconfigured, gender relations had been recast, and new sexual and reproductive freedoms were reshaping the social landscape. The national welfare state that had been put in place during the New Deal era of the 1930s had grown dramatically in terms of coverage and protection, and the national government's regulatory powers now extended into new areas of consumer protection, occupational health and safety, and environmental protection. Citizenship, citizenship and governance had been redefined by a broad-based minority rights revolution that spread outward from civil and voting rights to anti-discrimination laws targeting a wide variety of specific social groups and policy areas. But the forces of reaction were in motion before the dust had settled around the new political and social order. Between 1974 and 1978, the number of corporate-sponsored political action committees, and we call them PACs, grew from 89 to 784, with an additional 500 PACs emerging to represent trade associations and, and business interests. The American Chamber of Commerce, one of the most important business organizations in the United States, increased its base from 60,000 to 250,000 firms between 1972 and 1982, 
as the National Association of Manufacturers amassed enormous resources to engage in lobbying and research. The Business Roundtable, an organization of CEOs, quote unquote, committed to the aggressive pursuit of political power for the corporation, was created in 1972 to bring together corporate leaders as a more potent political force. Opening numerous offices in Washington, business interests pushed a broad and aggressive agenda, fighting to cut taxes and shift tax burdens toward workers, deregulate financial markets, undercut labor unions, dismantle social supports, and weaken environmental and workplace protections. Their efforts had profound implications for inequality and democracy in America, restructuring the political economy in ways that dramatically redistributed wealth upwards in the closing decades of the 20th century. The rest is history. In 1968, the richest 1% of Americans took home about 8% of the national income. Today, the top 1% earns roughly 25% of the national income and controls over 40% of the nation's wealth. And again, I should mention that in that same time frame, uh, the poverty rate has remained virtually unchanged. The political and economic transformation I just described, an event that David Harvey has qualified as a neoliberal takeover, occurred within the period that many historians have referred to as the long 1960s. This designation, the long 1960s, reflects the realization among most scholars that historical phenomena do not fit neatly within the confines of decades. But it also suggests the extent to which the progressive social movements that began during the 1960s have come to define the collective memory and historiography of the era. Indeed, history courses on the 1960s are still given all over the United States and all over the world for that matter, uh, in large part because we are fixated on the political movements that traversed that decade and continued into the 1970s, when they fractured and were incorporated and crushed. And we are fixated on these movements because we live in an era in which the direct action tactics they used and the movement cultures they created no longer seem possible in our age. The 1960s, to my students at least, seems like a time when collective forms of political engagement had some sense and some utility in comparison with the powerlessness and anony many of them feel in the present era of liberal consensus. And, and I'm maybe being unfair to them, but that's the kind of thing they, they seem to be saying to me. The Obama era have witnessed, uh, sorry, the, the Obama era has witnessed an increasing tendency to revisit the 1960s in order to make sense of the political circumstances of our times. Obama's ties to symbols of 1960s radicalism like Saul Alinsky and Bill Ayers threatened to derail his campaign before it even began, really. And when the forces of law and order violently confronted Occupy Wall Street protesters on the Brooklyn Bridge in October of 2011, chants of the whole world is watching filled the air, as they did during the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Memories of the brutal repression of anti-war protesters at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, thus, it seems, were still fresh in the minds of these young dissenters. But this was nothing new. The same chant was also heard repeatedly during the 1999 WTO protests in Seattle and at numerous demonstrations against the war in Iraq in 2003. Clearly, when protesters in the United States have looked for references to make sense of what it means to be engaging in contentious politics in the streets over the past few decades, 
the 1960s has quickly come to mind. This is a somewhat remarkable fact, I think, in the sense that many of the participants in these demonstrations have been millennials born between the early 1980s and late 1990s, uh, who came of age more than four decades after the 1960s, depending on when you count, you start counting. And this close relationship between the, this distant period more than four decades ago and these young participants should not be taken for granted. I was 18 years old in 1985, and looking back now, I can say with little hesitation that for my generation, neither the 1940s nor even the 1950s contributed to our quote-unquote usable past, to borrow an expression from Van White Brooks, in nearly the same way that the long 1960s does for young people today. Explaining why the 1960s still serves as a framework for conceptualizing the present for young people today is a complicated matter. To be sure, the popular cultural production of the long 1960s, the music, cinema, literature, and, and all the iconography has had a lot to do with this afterlife. Moreover, our fascination with the 1960s is not merely nostalgic per se, it also has to do with the ways in which the ideas, sensibilities, and structures of feeling of this past era have been somewhat seamlessly incorporated into our own. As Thomas Frank argued in his classic book, The Conquest of Cool, in the 1990s, Madison Avenue advertisers co-opted the language of youthful 60s rebellion to sell mainstream products to the consuming masses, a state of affair that continues today. Indeed, if, as Frederick Jameson has argued, one of the symptoms of postmodernism or the cultural logic of late capitalism is the incessant recycling of past styles and forms. The long 1960s has constituted a veritable gold mine of raw materials for this process. Now, this investment in the 1960s explains a great deal about why political historians paid so little attention for so long to the conservative movements and rationalities that emerged out of the era, even though the Clinton years when it became all, even sorry, even through the Clinton years, when it became all too clear in the United States that conservatism had captured the political center. This blind spot has now been corrected, as Caroline has mentioned, at least within the historical profession. But in light of the insurgent political challenges that have emerged in recent years, the Occupy movement, Black Lives Matter, and the Bernie Sanders campaign, I think we still need to move towards a better understanding of the relationship between the left social movements of the 1960s and 1970s and the neoliberal takeover of the 1970s, 1980s, and beyond. In particular, we need to think more about how the politics of identity and recognition that were ushered in by the movements of the long 1960s became unhinged from redistributive objectives and incorporated into the process of neoliberalization. Here I'm definitely echoing Thomas. All of the recent movements I just mentioned, Occupy, the Bernie Sanders campaign, and Black Lives Matter, um, have been constrained by identity politics in one way or another. Occupy fractured along lines of race in many cities. Black Lives Matter has been largely unable to incorporate Latinos who confront, albeit to a lesser extent, the same circumstances faced by African Americans in the streets and in the criminal justice system, and African Americans have tended to support Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, even as leading black intellectuals remind them of Hillary Clinton's ties to law and order politics, welfare reform, and the carceral state. So I'll stop talking now. 
Thank you all. Um, I guess I'd just really quick for a brief discussion amongst the four of us throw out one or two questions um, that were more or less kind of in the advertisement for this whole thing, but pretty quickly hopefully just get it open to the audience so we can have more of a um, wide-ranging discussion. I mean, do you all think in one form or another that there, well, let's put it like this. What is the contemporary importance of, again, understanding, understanding this amorphous category? We've had long 1970s, long 1960s. Again, this decades are, you know, complete human construction of time, yet nonetheless, they very much structure how we think, both as historians and a broader public. Does this thing that the 60s signifies, of which we clearly have some disagreement as well, matter to be understood in our kind of contemporary moment? And then also kind of more broadly speaking, I think one of the legacies, and Beck and I were talking about this earlier um, to ask you guys, of the 60s is a real conflation or both a politicization of the cultural train but also arguably a kind of culturalization of what we might call the political train, um, at least in the way social scientists historically distinguish those two. Um, so I guess just throw those two questions out and then perhaps we can even open it up, but if you guys have thoughts on those. I could, I could attempt an answer. I mean, I think the 60s matter a lot um, still, and, and I think that's because, uh, like I said, um, you know, we, we still give 1960s classes all over the world. Stu students are very interested in, in thinking about the 60s, and so we have to start asking ourselves why. And the next question is, well, why, why, the, why is the 60s important as a decade? And I think it's important um, because I think it provides, and, and again, this is why it's been so contentious in terms of historical memory. The memory of the 60s has been uh, you know, very politicized in the United States. And like I, I mentioned the example of, of Barack Obama's ties to somebody like Saul Alinsky, and suddenly you see on Amazon that Saul Alinsky's books are selling you know, millions of copies. Uh, you know, because, uh, because it matters, because there's a lot of investment in the meaning of this decade, uh, and, and I think that as a moment of possibility, and again, you, you threw out the, the, the idea of the world being up for grabs. I remember in Paris when uh, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn came uh, to talk about uh, the movie The Weather Underground. They, they expressed the same idea that it was a moment when people actually believed that revolution was impossible. Uh, oh, sorry, was possible. Uh, and, you know, thinking about the way my students talk about the 1960s and talk about today, I mean, I think we live now in, in this sort of moment of liberal consensus where people have lost contact with the meaning of political engagement uh, and, and the utility of political engagement. So if we can fight over that, and, and I think it's dangerous to start giving up too much on the idea of the 1960s as this moment of possibility, as this moment of civic engagement, and saying we're romanticizing, we're being nostalgic. Uh, you know, Of course, we have the, 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 the argument about the conservative 60s. This is important for us to understand. But I think politically it's important to, to, to maintain uh, a vision of, of the possibility of the 60s. Uh, and again, for, of course, for students of social movements, uh, it's an incredible laboratory uh, to understand uh, the tactics that movements can use to, to be effective or ineffective. I, I agree with, with, with what you just said. I mean, this is the drama of my life. Like, I think it's important to, st to understand the, the conservative 60s, yet you don't want to emphasize it too much so that it gets, you, you lose that aspect of that. That was the moment that was when anything seemed possible and the energy that created it. And that's uh, a key element that it is important to uh, 
remove part of the idealization of the 60s to, to be able to understand why, it meant, why over the long term this, the, the transformation that were imagined at that moment, that were imagined as possible at that moment, in the end did not work out. And I, I just think that the 1960s remains a really significant cultural touchstone and it's re-emerging, whether it's the long 1960s or the long 1970s, and even thinking in terms of your, your point about the culture and politics of um, this year, Beyonce's formation film clip that came out and her performance at the Super Bowl referencing Black Power singing, um, that I think there's a difference between the 60s and what actually happened, as if we can fully get to that, and the 60s as an idea and as a kind of shorthand for something hopeful and something possible, so that, and it, it operates as both of those things, as well as, um, you know, sort of bastardised versions of those two. Do you guys want to do it, given the culture question? And I was going to answer my own question, actually. <laughs> Um, I mean, which I think, and both, I mean, all of you guys to some degree or another brought up something that, I mean, not just to me that's increasingly striking, but not just that kind of moment of possibility. I mean, you mentioned Ares and Dorn in Paris, and right, and that's a moment of possibility shared by a lot of people, but it's also a moment of affluence. Um, and it's something that I think one of the, to me, one of the most dramatic and telling moment, uh, telling things about the kind of current state, of, if you will, of contentious politics is a real lack of recognition of, I would argue, again, the kind of willingness to have kind of a very kind of broad, uh, broad horizons and a broad worldview in terms of political possibility. Um, and oftentimes that political possibility comes not from the most oppression. In fact, I would argue historically, the moments of great kind of world surgency are not from the, uh, to quote the historian Lawrence Goodwin, not, don't come during the lean times. The lean times are in fact the vast majority of history for the vast majority of humanity. It's in moments of rising expectation and, pre and precisely not just around things like revolution, but just in general, around things like very, no very much notions of the good life, around the notion that one can expect a decent job, a decent kind of livelihood, a decent secure family, right? Very much all the things that, you know, the freedom budget is pushing forward, but, you know, Frank Franklin Roosevelt proposes in 1944 as the second Bill of Rights. Um, it's that actually kind of rising expectation. We live, in fact, in a time, I would argue, and especially with our students, with younger generations of massively declining expectation, right? Of feeling like there is no possibility for stable employment, of watching, you know, watching in the context of Australia, right? The education system grow increasingly privatized, watching a healthcare system grow increasingly privatized and seeing, you know, the example from across the Pacific Ocean of what that looks like in terms of debt in the United States. Um, so I'd say not just to think more broadly that you know the 1960s in the U.S. is a time of tremendous economic prosperity and the prosperity shared that allowed for that rising expectation. Sorry, just a, a, a story there on what's possible. One of the things we were talking about earlier, and, and to this point about what's happened to student activism, the sense of whether it can be effective at all. So as if the vice chancellor of the university is going to pay attention because they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. And I'm just reminded of, of an example of a student protest at USC about sweatshop labor. You know, there was that national movement about it. And the students were prepared to get arrested. They were prepared to get expelled from the university or suspended. But what the university administration did was call their parents. And that was the thing that the students weren't prepared for. 
was the pressure from their parents, so they all backed down. So of all the most threatening things that could have happened to them, <laughs> and it, it, I mean, I think that that shows something, <laughs> what their parents' relationship to the 1960s was, the conservatism and the moderates that you talk about coming out of that time and how that lays the foundation for the kind of perceived inaction of students now. Um, it's a terrible story. Yeah, I think, I mean, Thomas mentioned uh, expectations, uh, uh, rising expectations. And I think we have a sort of economy of expectations, uh, where if, if you're in, in a certain place within that economy, you have rising expectations. If you're in another place, you, you have declining expectations. Um, you know, we were having a discussion last night about, about uh, the kind of distance, the growing distance between uh, students at elite schools, and you have to think about the 1960s, a lot of the most active campuses were very elite campuses. You know, Berkeley, well, Berkeley wasn't quite as elite as it is today, but Columbia, uh, you know, Michigan is, is a fine school. Again, these are schools that have become more elite in this sort of neoliberal moment of, of competitive higher education in the United States. They weren't the same way. They were more public universities back then. But, I mean, a lot of elite students, very privileged students, I mean, I mentioned Bill Ayers. I mean, he was a father of extremely wealthy, and he came from a very wealthy background, were invested in touch with issues of class and redistributive politics. Whereas, you know, today, uh, students who attend these schools uh, are not quite as in touch, I think. Uh, and, and that's a big difference. Um, if you think, you know, a, 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 a friend of mine who teaches, it, I'll, 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 since we're being recorded, I'll, I'll keep him nameless and I'll keep his institution nameless. But I mean, I mean he talked to me about the fact that you know, there are students in his class, and when they start talking about people's backgrounds, you know, you talk about these are these are kids whose fathers manage hedge funds, uh, and who believe they're middle class. You know, who actually, when asked to sort of identify their class position, will say, "I'm middle class." The United States today, everybody's in the middle class. So I think that's a big change uh, in terms of the possibilities of of campus activism and of you know, young people being engaged in this, this kind of politics today. That's, on, that's only one part of the students. The other part of the students are the students who are like burdened with student debt, and uh, and they have they see that their possibilities are very limited and constrained uh, because they like you know they're afraid of downward mobility because of that weight of the debt and of uh, lack of good employment after their college years, and that also limits their activism. So then it's coming from both sides. Just throw one more possibly slightly contentious idea out there and then we can open it up. But in relationship to, I mean, I think one thing we're, we're doing, and I was doing it myself too, um, I mean, we're assuming a unity of kind of political interest on the part of youth or students, right? Um, and I think that really belies the fact that I don't think youth is a meaningful political category. Um, that is to say, as Andrew points out, as Carlene points out, as Beck points out, right, there is mass differentiation, right, in terms of debt, in terms of all sorts of things. And one of the things, I think one of those core legacies of the 1960s is this notion of a youth movement, right? That as if, right, Bill Ayers has the same political interests as the students, where, was, where did where Ayers go to undergrad? See Chicago? Yeah. As if, well, well, he operated in Chicago, let's just say that. As if he has the same political interests of the, as the students at the predominantly African-American Chicago State University about four miles down the road, um, which is essentially being shut down as we speak. Um, right, and the notion that, of course, that that's a meaningful category and can somehow stand in as a political subject is, in fact, some I think precisely the problem of the 19s, of that kind of memory of the 60s. Yeah. And then maybe, yeah, okay. 
Um, given that the 60s were successful to a certain extent, I mean, we can all see porn now, <laughs> for example, too much perhaps. Um, uh, and, you know, there are two women on the dais here. So, um, wouldn't you, I mean, I think perhaps the biggest legacy or the, the biggest evidence of the 60s now is Donald Trump. Um, first of all, he, uh, the biggest threat that this generation has is globalization, po possibly. He spe speaks against globalization. Um, Bernie Sanders, you could argue, is now uh, conventional. He's sp only saying the same things that we've heard since the 1960s. There's nothing new there, really. So if you, uh, and people say that Donald Trump is the protest vote. He, he's speaking out, he's actually not particularly conservative on social issues. He is um, articulating a viewpoint that no one else is articulating. He doesn't come from uh, the corporatized political class of Hillary Clinton. He doesn't come from socialism as Sanders is affiliated with. He comes from nowhere, really. He comes from Roy Cohn, I read in the paper today. So, <laughs> so uh, but he, he is, is people saying he's capturing the protest vote. He's capturing people who have nowhere else to go and who are fed up because they are outside the mainstream. And he's also about that generation, isn't he? Or is he a little younger? Anyway, is there, anyone got a comment on the direct line between the 1960s and Donald Trump? I mean, look, I mean, I mean, it's an, I mean, you know, he comes from a very, one of the most, arguably, in fact, small, most powerful kind of micro-political classes in America, and that's New York real estate investors. Right, um, I mean, his family has controlled New York real estate, and again, this is a cl class of people who has controlled New York politics, arguably, basically since the LaGuardia administration went downhill. Um, so, in that sense, you know, he comes from a political lead. I mean, but what you're saying, right? I mean, is you know, the very much the standard boilerplate kind of Trump diagnosis that it's a protest vote that people are fed up with all sorts of things. Um, you know, I mean, Trumpism looks a lot like in his policies what Ross Perot did in both 1992 and 1996. Um, it looks like devoid of some of the hardest edges of, in particular, what George Wallace, the arch segregationist from Alabama who ran for president multiple times in the 60s and 70s did, um, devoid ever so slightly of the harshest edges, I should say, in that it was an anti-elite, um, generally kind of visceral class appeal to dislocation, right? Um, and But the dislocation caused, again, not by spiraling debt, not by de declining, not, uh, not stagnating, but actually declining wages, not by um, industrial decline and the inability of American politics to reimagine the jobs that have taken them place as real avenues into the middle class, but caused by others, right? Caused by, in Wallace's case, African Americans, in Trump's case, Latinos and Muslims. Um, and right, I mean, so in that sense, it is a protest vote, it is a pro but it is a very specific diagnosis. And again, it's a very diagnosis that comes out of a very recognizable kind of political microclass, again, kind of urban real estate developers in big American cities, which if you, if you want to talk about hedge fund managers having power in America, talk about real estate developers even more so, as I think Sydney siders know all too well. Um. I just want to say, oh, well, uh, just quickly uh, to follow up on that, I mean, I think, I think Donald Trump's a protest vote, but I think Bernie Sanders is also a protest vote. I mean, I think there are two forms of protest vote, and, and, and I agree with Thomas that he represents a much older strain of populism uh, that, that extends you know, back in time beyond the 60s, but certainly uh, his um, 
attractiveness has something to do with this kind of neoliberal takeover as well. The idea when 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 a culture starts looking to, towards businessmen as political leaders, you know, that's symptomatic of, of a neoliberal condition, right, in my opinion. You, you, politicians used to be lawyers and policymakers. Uh, more and more, they are being evaluated for their business acumen. Uh, so I think that, that Trump is uh, representative of that as well. And that, that, again, that's older than Trump, but he's certainly exploiting that. I just, I kind of felt horrified when you made that statement about connecting Trump to the 1960s and, and trying to, thinking about why I feel that horror or, or how I might explain it. I think partly, and it's not about how people would vote for Trump, but about what he represents is the kind of hope of the 1960s that's been discussed versus the cynicism of Trump and that his trajectory isn't just coming out of this real estate class, but as has also been widely discussed about Trump, out of reality television, so that there's a kind of ratings, ratings of propelling Trump. The me he's, he's become a creation, not, I mean, no one's voted yet. So the, he's, he's a creation of how are we gonna sell more magazines? How are we gonna sell more newspapers? Who's gonna click on this website? And one of the things I've been saying is I think there needs to be some kind of international therapy given to people who are clicking on things because they see Donald Trump. It's like pressing your own bruise really hard. I mean, look, um, just to, I mean, really quickly jump in and say that, I mean, you're absolutely right, though, that Trump is hitting on, you know, one of the geniuses of the Republican Party of the last 40 years is to marry um, essentially a global um, globalization, um, right, with the kind of social conservative politics exemplified by Ted Cruz. And frankly, and a lot of time, that is a very bad marriage of people. But the Republican Party has kept that marriage together despite often um, fissures, and one of the things you're seeing, right, is precisely the fact that, you know, a lot of people are getting screwed over massively by things like NAFTA, things like the TPP, and Trump is railing against them so in a way that Republicans had not previously, and he's able to do that while, at the, while at the same time as someone like Cruz is taking the other people in the party in the opposite direction. So in that sense, I mean, you know, most our, our Beck and I's colleague, David Smith, who's, you can see on TV, talking about this pretty much every night, um, Right, I mean, the real momentous thing arguably going on too is the Republican Party really kind of breaking apart at the seams because those two constituencies can really, again, to use the marriage analogy, no longer sleep in the same bed. Hi, um, as I'm sure you're all aware, I'm very politically involved at Sydney University after the last uh, conversation. Um, I wanted to ask if you thought that perhaps the obsession with focusing on comparing modern social movements to that that happened in the 60s has a lot to do with the fact that the commentators, the parents, maybe people present as well, have that nostalgia because it was their time. And this comparison saying that perhaps things didn't work out and that things still needed to be fought on is a sense of failure. And that to put down what is happening today is a way of reinstating, well, I'm actually quite comfortable, so what are you complaining about? And that whole kind of system that was rooted in the 60s with the ideal that these great things happened and there was hope. And then we see that it 
didn't come to fruition in, in its fullest sense. And the idea that fighting on many of these issues still today feels like a defeat and a failure to those who were there then. So I think to narrow that question down is, do you think a lot of the obsession with putting down modern movements and comparing them to the 60s is a way of stopping that maybe disappointment that things didn't work out? I th yeah, I, yeah, I think there's definitely something, you know, generational about it. And it's true that, you know, for very long time, the, all the commentators and all that generation was a generation that actually lived the 60s and was active in it one way or the other. The, this is starting to change though. So we, we see how this evolved. And in, just in terms of the history, you know, historical profession, uh, people like myself obviously did not leave the 60s. The, uh, and that actually produced an effect in transforming the historiography and the look that we new historians, the younger generation of historians have on the 60s. So it may be uh, happening as well in, as, a, you know, as a gleam of hope for the future that maybe they won't be uh, looking down on the, what's happening now as, in, as a way to kind of like, how do you call it? Oh, I'm missing the word. Square this kind of the situation and figure out you know, what happened and we, where we failed and what we succeeded and stuff like that. I, I think that there's also, you used the word nostalgia, and the lady speaking before talked about the urgency and wanting us to, to kind of acknowledge the urgency that people felt then. So I think that there's also a difference between how individuals experience what they're happening and then the long view of history. So that we might, I think that, I think it's unfair to only talk about it in terms of nostalgia or a trying to fix what didn't work out then as much as a kind of, this happened and it mattered to us, that people want their own history and their own part in it to be acknowledged. Yeah, I'll just add really quickly to echo something Andrew said earlier. As a historian, but also someone interested in this at the more political level, you know, to the word laboratory that he used, right? I mean, it's not for me, I don't think about it at a nostalgia level. I think with a kind of, you know, I think sober-minded people thinking about stuff today need to you know, not necessarily learn the lessons of history, if you will, at some broad level, right? But at least think about, you know, where people made mistakes, where strategy went poor, poor, where, you know, where were the junctures where, you know, people lost sight of their eyes on the prize, so to speak. Um, I was thinking more of the social media today and how you actually compare that for protesting and so on compared to that period of time. I mean, I was um, started university in 70, but I remember the 60s very well and so on. And certainly where I was, there was very little options for protesting and, you know, it was quite censored and, and so on. Whereas today, you know, people can say something and um, you, you, you can protest in so many other ways. And how would you compare that then? If you were trying to compare with them, you know, to say, oh, they're not protesting as much or... I mean, I, I think the social media is interesting to think about. Um, I don't think it's transformed the situation in some ways. Um, I think it, it but although it has in others. I mean, in, in one sense, I mean, if you look at the United States and you look at contentious politics today and, and, and social movements, you have black Twitter, you have Latino Twitter, 
you see what I'm getting at. Uh, the, the kinds of identity politics in the 1960s that, that many look to as having fractured uh, the left and, and really unhinged protest politics from, from redistributive politics, uh, we can see today. Uh, the social media has reproduced those fractures, I think, and, and I think e in even more serious ways. Uh, the other thing I think, but in, in some ways, how it's transformed protest politics is, in my opinion, there's still something to be said about occupying space, uh, about massing people in, in places. Uh, there's still something very important to that. Um, you can think about the Arab Spring, although, you know, in uh, Tahrir Square, uh, you know, even though the, the end of that story isn't great, uh, just to think about kind of transformative politics. Um, and I think the social media, which was hailed as a technology that was gonna make that, that kind of thing more possible, I think it has, in, in the end, has made it less possible, in fact, because I think people are now, so I think social media is substituting for contentious politics, for, for more traditional forms of protest politics that, that can be more effective, I, I think. Anybody else? You don't wanna pound the table on that one? Um, as a, a little glimmer of hope, um, it seems to me that um, despite the inevitable um, sort of hyper-mediatised um, gubernatorial e excesses that we're watching at the moment with, with Trump and his, his, uh, his antics, etc., um, that there's been a, um, a quiet revolution um, via um, the, the gradual process of uh, entryism um, by 60s radicals um, entering into um, the teaching profession, entering into um, the, uh, the academies of learning, uh, entering into um, the public service and um, uh, working with, um, you know, underprivileged minority groups, etc., through um, work in social policy, etc., social work, um, and also concomitantly um, we're seeing a kind of a paradigm shift um, from an anthropocentric pre-60s American um, view of human interrelations with the environment towards a more um, ecocentric interrelationship. Uh, and that was largely influenced by the IPCC um, putting quite a bit of pressure on, you know, the Obama in incumbency. And Obama, um, you know, did work some magic um, in Paris um, and was a positive influence on other um, more recalcitrant um, governments like our own here in Australia. Just a quick comment. I mean, I guess I would disagree in so far, you know, as early as 1972, Barbara Epstein, who was uh, one of the kind of leading feminist thinkers and activists in America, began to decry, in fact, what she, I think it's she who calls it the retreat to the academy and the retreat to basically the politics of tenure. Um, Terry Eagleton, in the context of England, makes that point in the mid-70s, that in fact, the greatest sign of the defeat of the, that generation and the politics of that generation was that it's kind of leading people began to go back and get PhDs. Um, and take those PhDs and go teach, right? That they moved away from actually the institution building capabilities that they were 
that animated the politics in the mid to late 1960s and into the early 1970s. And that is, again, there was a critique that Epstein and Eagleton made as early as the mid, early to mid 70s, I would say. So I think there's a different side to that story too. But I mean, some of that is, well, you know, what else can you do when you lose, but you know, go teach a class. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I would, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I agree with the term entrism. I'm not sure it's really entrism and try to like lead the choir revolution. I mean, I, I like the idea though, but the, uh, I think it was maybe more, at least for a lot of people, just finding another way when the, when the general you know, revolutionary project did not actually materialize in the face of a lot of repression and, uh, and other factors, trying to find ways to actually produce some change, at least in its immediate environment, and do something within the limits of what was possible. So I'm not sure it's actually entrism in terms of leading, trying to find a way to the revolution, but at least just to try to live a life according to their values and uh, affect some change, some positive change this way. Although, you know, I, I don't want this to, I don't want this gentleman here to, to go out completely undefended. Um, you know, uh, on, the one, on the one hand, I think it is important uh, on another level in the sense that uh, American universities and higher education uh, was transformed by a lot of these people. Um, you know, the end of that story is complicated. Uh, basically, we in institutionalized identity politics within higher education in the United States. Um, and that, that transformation caused an enormous backlash. Uh, the United States was, uh, campuses were, were battlegrounds in the 1980s and 1990s over multiculturalism, over gender politics, over the politics of sexuality. And we've lo and largely lost those battles, uh, and, and they're being fought again today. Uh, you know, I feel like we're back in the 1990s today with uh, new struggles for uh, minority faculty members and uh, uh, you know, affirmative action policies being rolled back. Uh, so it's complicated, it's a complicated story. Um, the other thing is just to add, uh, on the depressing side of things, if you wanna talk about entrism into social services, well, that did happen uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. A lot of militants and, and radicals went into social services, but the problem is that the whole thing got destroyed during the Reagan Revolution, you know, where basically you know, the whole so social services industry gets cut down, uh, at least at the state's role in that. Um, and, and so you know, that's another complicated and, and somewhat sad story. Do you think that there, there is any kind of influence from the cultural uh, uh, connections between culture and politics? Uh, some, something like um, uh, like French, like a Brigitte Bardot, or just Fran uh, Francois Sagan, or like an angry young man, like an, all those kind of rebellion, rebellious, like post-war generation youth culture. During the 50s, 50s already there. And do you think that is there any kind of uh, relationship between like 50s, that kind of all rebellious culture, cultural, um, not, I, I wouldn't say that it's movement, but that kind of influence could be acted as some kind of trigger for the 60s. Let me just say an example of the relationship of the 50s to the 1960s, say, is, um, people who become the purchasers of Evergreen Review um, or Grove Press books in the 1960s are young during the 1950s and part of what's happening then is that uh, as they describe it, that they're growing up in this America that they feel is stifling cultural conformity. It's a kind of suffocating thing. 
So the beat generation of the 1950s is one of the ob most obvious expressions of the rebellion against that in the 1950s. And those people are hugely influential on activists of the 1960s. So yes, is the short answer. To th there is a relationship between what's happening in the 50s and what happens in the 1960s. I guess I would just add that in my reading of it too, and Beck's absolutely correct, um, but it also cuts both ways. And the kind of story I was trying to get at earlier, right, is the story of, in some ways it's a story of anti-organizationalism, right, and which is very much a part of the kind of anti-establishment politics of the 60s, a very kind of deep suspicion of the large structures of kind of Fordist modernity, um, which led to a very deep suspicion of large-scale organizations, be they civil rights organizations, unions, a real organized feminist organizational base, um, which I think in many ways is one of the bad legacies coming out of that moment um, of the 1960s, an inability to try to actually build sustained institutions. So, and it, it's completely, of course, understandable, right, in the kind of cultural ferment of the 1950s and early 1960s that there is that cultural reaction, but I think oftentimes it moved just away from the stellifying suburban house and the, um, you know, uh, the man in the gray flannel suit, to use the old 50s term, right, into an actual suspicion of building capacity to actually imagine exercising power, right, which is to me the definition of politics. Right, but then the, the cuts both ways point that you're making too also speaks to how the, this suspicion can feed into the rise of individualism, which works against collective action right. too, right? And I think for a lot of the conversation that we're having, there are, there are multiple ways to seeing it. And, I just had to say, in response to the social media one, and, and your, your comment on the how how it's not changed so much, and and that there, it really does matter to have people physically on the ground. One, the counter to that, my counter to that would be, I think that we're living in the most significant feminist wave, if you like, since the 60s or 1970s, and I think it's because of social media making it visible. So I think that social media is a problem. <laughs> But it also is really amazing for opening up kind of bigger global imagined communities and for visibility as well. Uh, so I wanted to quickly just touch on uh, looking at this from I guess a more um, uh, like global context, especially because uh, some of the visiting professors you know, are from French universities. I was surprised when Andrew you mentioned that your students look at the 60s and they feel kind of powerless in a way that the 60s weren't seeing as uh, you teach at the Sorbonne. And I would imagine that France in particular has a history of, of activism and, and a feeling of powerfulness. So I was wondering what, how important is learning the 60s from that particular context? So um, my point, um, I want to quickly try and trace a line between the 60s and now. Um, a thread, identify a thread. I was around in the 60s and the protest movement and all that sort of stuff. Um, and as some of you said, you know, listening to you, it, it was a complex period. There wasn't just one thing um, happening or, or one group or whatever. But um, you didn't say much about it, but from the 50s, you know, to the early post-war generation, uh, there was a large number of the post-war uh, uh, baby boomers. Uh, a dissatisfaction with, you know, the conservatism that existed. Um, and in a sense, as you alluded to, 
somewhat in, in the 80s, 70s to 80s, there was a fight back against that, uh, which led to neoliberalism and things like the corporatization of university and so on. So there was a period when universities were more inward-looking and conservative about careers and whatnot. But now I think there's a bit of a, a swing back in a way, um, again, driven by dissatisfaction with what is, um, the oppressive nature of that and things like surveillance and whatnot. Um, and, you know, loss, loss of liberty, yeah. So, so this line is, um, but in particular, movements like uh, uh, um, civil society, you know, that whole spectrum of civil society, etc. Would you see that as being kind of a launch pad for a new response to, to the stifling effect? Um, I just wanted to ask a quick question about some of the challenges that you think arise when you're studying a period of history that people still live in, in terms of people being born in the 1960s and people who were born beforehand. What are some of the challenges as historians that you find as studying history and writing history when you have people who are alive from that time period? Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to speak to the Paris question, the Sorbonne, uh, because there's a lot of misperceptions about the Sorbonne in the world. Uh, the Sorbonne is a public university. Anyone living within this district can enroll there with the right, you know, having with the right diplomas. Uh, so my students, this would be a longer conversation, which would be more complicated. But uh, the French system is very strange in that uh, there's a, a, a whole echelon of institutions called the Grandes Écoles, but it basically sucked a lot of the life out of the public universities. I, I don't teach in one of those. The Sorbonne is not a Grandes Écoles, believe it or not. Uh, and so my students are in that economy of kind of somewhat diminishing expectations. They're a little nervous. Uh, and so that's why I talked a little bit about them. And, and, and I can tell you that they feel powerless, um, it, especially in the current political context in France with the, uh, the Socialist Party um, basically championing uh, policies that we associate with austerity and the right. Uh, and, uh, you know, so my students, don't feel like there's a lot of, they don't have a lot of power. Uh, and, and I think, again, they're taking courses in American history and, and they do see the 1960s as this moment of sort of optimism. Uh, and, and again, to, to pound the table on this idea, I think that's why the 60s are somewhat important for us to keep talking about in the sense that in terms of the histories of emotions, uh, it, it's an important moment uh, in that certain emotions are associated with the 60s today. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the 60s were a long time ago, you know, for, for these students. Uh, you know, they, they don't, they live in a, a post-60s moment, and yet the 60s are still there in their consciousness. Uh, so, you know, which justifies this, this, round, this round table. I don't know, but other, other questions? I'm just gonna still, just to, uh, to uh, continue what you just said, I mean, so I teach at Nanterre University, which was the hotbed of, of May 68, in, in France, so the students are, and it's very, students from very different background, it's a more varied, many, many ways student body because of the location of the university in a western, in a semi-rich western suburb yet surrounded by poor suburbs, so it's very mixed student body. And they, because of the history and the legacy of Nanterre 68, they, there's this tradition of activism in France and it still, it still exists 
although overall they are they feel demobilized in many ways, and especially as Andrew just said, because of the current political context with the left socialist government uh, undertaking very conservative reforms, but they still, in many ways, they don't they don't give up. And you have a tradition, and if you look at French political history of the past few decades, a recurrence of student protests, you know, students taking to the streets and trying to. Uh, achieve some change, and more recently, they actually achieved some success because that new labor law that the government was trying to uh, impose as is had been actually modified due to student protests that, you know, that barricaded the uh, high schools and some universities for several days, and in the end, the government backed down and changed the law. So it, just to have some optimism about the, the state of student uh, mobilization, uh, Interesting to mention uh, also, in terms of giving you the, an idea of the Paris scene right now, is that right after that movement, uh, we live right near, uh, we live in central Paris, we live near the Place de la République, and right now in Paris, uh, at the end of that movement, there is this, uh, a sort of movement, uh, more cultural and political movement that, that just sprung up. Uh, you know, the, the, the students somewhat accomplished their goals, but there were a lot of people who were leaders in that movement against the law decided to continue it, uh, which is an, an interesting idea to actually, you know, continue a movement after the aims have been somewhat uh, accomplished. And, and they've been there for a couple of weeks now, uh, every night uh, discussing things. And, 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 you know, thousands and thousands of people are gathering on a nightly basis, uh, some of them staying up all night. You, you, might, you may start hearing about it in the media. I don't know if it's hit the international media yet. It's called Nuit Debout, means up all night, basically. Uh, but you know, every, every night there are really violent confrontations between the police uh, who are trying to clear the, the square. So again, it's important that this, this space is occupied and there are these uh, utopian ideas, people discussing about how to restructure society. Come and to congregate and exchange and compete. They actually congregate. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Um, I mean, you know, I think, you know, and I have colleagues not just on this table in this room who also study the history of relatively the recent past. I mean, I think I, one of my biggest challenges, and I'll say this, is in some ways, talking to colleagues who don't, um, and I have some in this room as well who do that, but, um, which is to say there's an assumption that because of the recency of events, um, that there's source material readily available, that of course, um, and that's actually oftentimes furthest from the truth. Um, and then furthermore, looking at things like the 60s, I mean, the question of nostalgia is, is incredibly important in how you kind of parse out what people say about those times, but also, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we didn't talk about this, and for good reason, because it's not that interesting, I think, in a lot of regards, but the kind of sectarian battles, especially by the late 1960s, around the, amongst the student left, amongst civil rights, amongst feminism around the world, were brutal. And the score settling that goes on today is really quite hilarious in a lot of regards, especially when you, know, you get to the point where you've got you know, this crazy Trotskyist organization against that crazy Trotskyist organization. They're all trying to basically say, you betray the revolution. No, you betray the, betray the revolution. Like, I mean, really, y'all were both dead by then anyway. So. So I mean, so that I mean, that's I think that nostalgia when you're looking, especially at people who regard themselves as political actors, and oftentimes political actors who've had their kind of their moment in the sun, and the sun is since well set, um, is an important kind of hardship to get through at, at the research level. Um, I guess that's just what I would say. 
Um, it is time to go. I have, um, <laughs> I um, wish I had some last before, but what I will say is we have brought probably not enough to give everyone a glass, but um, anyone who would like to stick around where there's a little bit of wine um, and a little bit of small glasses if we would like to hang out and continue these conversations for a brief moment. Um, and I'll bring the wine out and put it up here and we can know. Thank you all for coming.